and I think this now is our chance to consider them collectively because what we've heard might not be what everybody in the room agrees with, even if we think about it as lining up the facts. So we started the day with the politics of Brexit. We heard from Andy Moravchik about the politics, the rhetoric of populism, including Brexit, being louder, the bark being louder than its bite, as it were. I want you to think about that. Does that. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's true for Brexit? We then heard from Sir Paul Lever about Germany and why Brexit is not a priority for Germany. It has other key priorities and what Germans' vision for the European Union is. We heard from Jonathan Storey a number of the drivers behind populism, but I thought one that stood out for me was his point about the decline of working class support for the Labour Party, because that's true across Europe. All of the workers' parties across Europe are polling around 6%, and I think that's quite important if we think about who the working class is going to vote for next. <coughs> and, and then we heard from Simon Fraser about the possibility of reversing Brexit, of, about which I've heard a lot of argumentation among you about whether that's uh, about whether you agree or disagree with Simon Fraser about the reversibility of Brexit. So that was our morning on the politics of Brexit, Brexit, its reversibility, its direction. And we then moved this afternoon to some of the business sectors, agriculture, <coughs> British business perceptions, banking and finance, a lovely optimistic view, just as our energies were flagging from Carol. Um, and then indeed... Brexit for the university itself. So we've had a lot of facts lined up. So what I'd like to do now is to open up to the people whom we have not heard from about your questions. Did you agree? Have you agreed with the facts as laid out today? Which are the ones that you most agree with, or most particularly, I think it would be interesting to start with, the ones that you most disagree with, so that we can start working out which are the facts, as it were, that we need to think about carefully before we line them up in the way that we've been trying to today. So can I turn immediately to those of you, we've got the panellists all down, down here. You're welcome to address questions to specific panellists, but you're equally welcome to um, highlight issues that you think we should have covered and haven't. Question the facts as they've been put to you today. Can I turn straight to you? Yes, Calypso. <coughs> Yes, hello. I'm Calypso Nicolaitis, a um, faculty here at Oxford. And I was just, Mary, if you allow me, going to say that what well, we've just had all day, nine very brilliant and manly presentations. So I thought that I would try to make my point by citing actually all of them, because we ladies are very inclusive. Um, but I do want to make a point about Europe and Brexit in five steps. George Howard um, brilliantly demonstrated the real and present rise of China. This is where we stop with Brexit, I think. Because it makes it really clear to us that the real challenge for Europe in the next 30, 40 years is to decline elegantly, <laughs> to manage an elegant decline. And if that's the case, then I would submit that we have a Brexit paradox, because I would have thought that managing that decline elegantly would have required Britain 
unfortunately, that's another universe, as Philip Pullman from this very city would say. Um, so, if that's the case, then I think there are three scenarios, really, that would address this decline. And the contrast between the first two was made clear by Paul Lever's presentation. Both of them would, I think, wouldn't really work when we have the German status quo, a German Europe, which actually will continue to deepen divides, not just between North and South, but East and West, although it's a status quo, maybe that's okay. And then we have French activism, à la Macron, a French Europe, which of course France cannot deliver, alone or with It is very true. <laughs> so Paul Lever's kind of implicit message. And indeed, then this is kind of echoed by uh, Mr. Gagan, who um, talks about, well, maybe a version of that French way of thinking is the two circles, which after all are also German, uh, old idea. But I would submit to you um, that there's a huge sway of the so-called federal center huge way of population who don't really want to be in that this ever tighter union. And there's a huge sway of the outer circle of which Britain could be part, which don't really want to perceive themselves as second-class EU citizens. So two circles are also very elegant, but perhaps too elegant. It doesn't really work with what citizens feel. So, can, it, so, so can I just... Thirdly, can you cl close on this point? This can be your last point. Well, I just wanted to kind of go through the reasoning, and I am on my okay. third point. Well, because very, really very quickly, so we can get everybody. I understand. Mm. Uh, but I mean, I can't make the point if I, if I, I did promise to cite everyone, so I'm almost <laughs> So I've now gone to the third scenario, which is Jonathan Story's scenario, which is something I feel very close to, which is a kind of third way, really, a kind of a Europe we would wish, and very often in pro-EU UK, we would have wished to stay in and reform towers, which is a union of peoples, an alliance, and what I call democracy. Um, and really, lots of Scandinavians, Dutch, uh, even in South Europe, many in the EU, in public opinion, would want that kind of Europe. But then, in part, the question of our conference is, what does Brexit do to these visions, and including the third? And, and there, there, these are like my last two points. You know, we have the question of what it does in the short term, transition period. Simon Fraser laid it out for us, and it was echoed by Daniel Gagan. It's a mess. And it's a mess that is really very hard to swallow by proud British politicians, population. It's being really uh, in, but not out, but almost in when one was in but almost out, and being a kind of vassal of the EU. But so, we shouldn't be that pessimistic, fifth point, Mary, fifth and last point, if we listen, right from the beginning, to Andy Moravchev, who tells us that, hey, Brexit is yet another populist project that will not really happen. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. The facts are such, because the facts are about structure and interest and levers and these guys, they don't have the levers, the civil servants, etc., to make this happen. Um, and this point that Andy started us with very brilliantly was illustrated very clearly by Daniel Gagan for agriculture and Carol Lanou for finance. It won't really change that much, really. 
because that's not what happens in the real economy. But there are buts, aren't there, Andy? And it's a question. One but <coughs> is Paul Mizen and telling us what, well, maybe message sent is not message received, uh, Andy. And maybe business doesn't quite get it because business, like others, are worried about uncertainty. And uncertainty <coughs> is a perception. And that's there in the ethos of the whole story of Brexit. That's what you told us, wasn't it, Paul? And so we're left with the sense that in this whole story, yes, structural factors matter, Mary, but at the same time, agency matters. What can we do? Let's assume Brexit will happen. And yes, Mary, it's a big assumption. Some people in this room wish and hope that no, it won't, and we can reserve it. I don't, I don't think so. But I think we need to take to heart the point that Alistair Buckley made uh, for our very university, but I think for our country and our continent, perhaps the world. That is, mitigate. That is, act. That is, there is a situation, what can we do about it? That's what we're all about in Oxford. I think that's what the agenda is. We are today in an agenda of resilience. We're in an agenda where whether it's a university or our countries or our continent, we have to learn to be guardians of the long term. And in order to do that, not take facts as given, and I'm sorry, Anthony, for that. Facts are contested and constructed uh, stuff out there. We Facts are what we make of them, and I hope that we can make of this Brexit fact something that is survivable for all of us. Thank so you. Thank you, Calypso. Thank you. Um, excellent. So, Calypso draws our attention to, to two debates running through today. One is, will Brexit happen? And the other is, if it happens, will it really make much difference? So over to you. On the first of those, how many of you think Brexit will happen? Well, well to find terms. I mean, I think Brexit Britain, is happen. Britain will exit from the European Union. Legally? Yes. Or in terms of policy? Well, okay, so that's most of you. Most of you think Brexit will happen. Yeah. Who thinks Brexit will not happen? It's reversible. Okay, so that's, that's quite a few. Um, can you, sir, yes, the last hand that went down at the back. Why do you think it won't happen? I think the complications are so many mm -hmm. that little by little people will come to uh, realise that they are insurmountable. And, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a year from now uh, the structure that will carry out the Brexit mm -hmm. procedure mm -hmm. Will in a way collapse, mm -hmm. and there will be mm -hmm. another election, mm -hmm. probably with another prime minister. And and the others who think Brexit will not happen, yeah, your your is is your reason the same? Yeah, I, I mean, there's more mm. and more complications. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you can mention mm. any of them. Say Ireland, mm. stop it almost mm. in its track. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ireland is fudged. Mm. They mm. all try to find a solution. There's no solution. Mm. I mean, the December agreement was, you know, at the worst, we'll leave things mm. as they are. And I mean, mm. and that's going to be found in, you know, many of the other sectors mm. we've got. And as, mm. the, as one bogs down mm. in the detail, this is all the generalities mm. to 18 months to get to, without starting any of these individual sectors. Once that is there, just bogs down, becomes totally a mess. Um, and, and as was said here, there's still the opportunity to, to, to get out of it. And if, so the, these, 
strike me as the rational reasons for a reversal, which were also the rational reasons for not voting in the first place. Are there any political reasons that people have for why Brexit might not happen? Yes. yes. I think that um, Brexit as a whole, the whole process of it has been a sort of a, a mess, putting it mildly, on mm-hmm. the very outset. Mm-hmm. I think the Parliament in that, um, in that mess has been, in that process, has been um, disappointingly my um, delinquent, well, not present, in ways that one would have expected it under our constitution, in our constitution, uh, as a as a representative, you know, as a parliamentary democracy. Um, I think when it wakes up and has the privilege of actually addressing the facts, mm-hmm. or what mm-hmm. is purports to be fact at the time mm-hmm. and the final deal, if it comes and when it comes and is presented, um, I think it will have an opportunity to regain its merger in a way that hasn't been mm-hmm. obvious for a long time. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, ever since the Scottish referendum, which was ill, by the way, do we have anyone in the room who voted for Brexit or who, who hopes for Brexit? Or is this... Yes, so what do you think? <laughs> I think you are. I, I think... I, I did wonder when, when somebody introduced the meeting this morning as... I think it was Anthony, as the 1962 matriculation class of Queens or something, that we might be in risk of groupthink. You know, sort of, but but wh- where do you sit now? How do you hear these arguments about why it might not happen? I think it will happen. We have um, a referendum that uh, voted partly in favour of it. The last election was fought by the vast majority of the main parties um, supporting the idea of Brexit. I think there is a momentum there. I think there are lots of brilliant minds and lots of uh, much cleverer people than me that will come up with solutions. It won't be what it won't be just sort of a final, final uh, severance. There. there will be compromises on the way, and I'm personally reasonably satisfied that something will emerge. Mm-hmm. And are there any non-British Europeans in the room that agree with that? I'm Brit, but I agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, be, there are people sure. like myself mm. who are reluctant mm. Remainers mm. for a balance mm. of probability mm. decided that mm. you couldn't mm. prove an economic yes. case, so I'm accepting yes. the economic yes. downside. But politically, the decision has been made. And it yes. I was asking our European colleagues for the reason that I, I would agree you can have brilliant and creative people that can come up with new solutions, but then it's asking a lot of the EU27 mm. to put all their other issues aside and to focus on Britain's new and creative and brilliant solutions as a priority for them to, in a timely way, come up with agreements for Britain. And I think that's, we've heard quite a lot today from both sides. I think that's been a good, good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a Remainer, mm-hmm. but I also have been listening very hard for the last 18 months for um, a counter-argument that people have voted. Mm-hmm. And whilst it's a good idea that the Parliament can turn over and become masculine again or feminine again, whichever does the turning, uh, actually 
what matters most is the people. Mm -hmm. And what I would ask our panel is, what's going to make the people change mm -hmm. their minds? Because mm -hmm. I don't think our parliament mm -hmm. is going to come in and override the people mm -hmm. just because we've either got mm -hmm. a, a very good conclusion mm -hmm. or a very mm -hmm. bad conclusion. Mm -hmm. They want it out. Mm -hmm. And someone has to persuade them. So, hmm? Polls say they already have changed that. No, about 52 to 48. Do you think that's I'm enough to get our parliament to turn it over? I do on a poll because in reality, wow. people will poll much more timidly than they actually vote in the privacy of the booth. And I think that, <coughs> yeah. if, you, if you read the Sunderland Evening Echo, somebody mentioned Sunderland today. <coughs> Sunderland Evening Echo. I confess I'm not a regular reader. But <laughs> well, no, exactly. but yeah. if, you, if you study the evening, you'll find it. But that was the turnstone. Because the Evening Echo did a poll of 3,000 workers and some of the day before the poll. And they announced in the Evening Echo that, according to Sunderland, it would be about 60, 40 Brexit, because that's what the workers wanted. And when the results came out, it was the first place to, to declare its results, Sunderland. They were spot on right. And all the pundits were made to look the crescent that they are. And then about three months later, the Sunderland Evening Echo said, right, we'll run the same poll. We'll ask the same question to the same cross-section of people, and we'll see what happens now. And do you know what? It was the other way around. 60% remain, 40% leave. They've learnt that they've been lied to, and in a poll, in the privacy of a poll, they express their opinions. If you put that across the country, it would be a no result. I mean, remain was just walking. So let me put that. You're all readers of the evidence, readers of newspaper reports on polls. How many of you think that a majority of Brits today would vote to remain? And how many of you think not? Yeah, see, that's, uh -huh. this is a, an, a very informed audience, and that's very split. I Paul? The in the whole, rather than this audience. I just think that there's so much of the case. Mm. Now we've got a runner here, so I just want to check whether anyone had an urgent, at the risk of this man losing his train, but an urgent question for Jonathan's story. Then perhaps huge thanks from all, all of right. us for a great presentation this morning. Well, I think they're happening, actually. Um, you know, the French uh, made this yellow, and they're trapped in it. Uh, they can't get out, and I think it's also the case with the Italy. Uh, and the yellow is a major generator of what we call populism. And that is to do with something very much more complicated, which is why the ideas of Europe have become like the world. And I wrote about this with our old friend Guy de Calmois in the 60s and 70s about uh, how we shifted left and uh, really a lot of legislation was introduced across the EU that was hostile to business. Um, and that's still very much in the mentality. So um, I don't see, I think there's lots of ruptions in this Euro land, but it's I doubt if it's going to break apart. On the other hand, uh, I think the reality is that the, um, the periphery 
want to stay in the periphery uh, because they're more or less in it. What I would say is that it's very clear, I didn't mention this, that if you look at the World Economic Forum list of competitiveness, Germany and Holland are three and, number three and four. <coughs> France, UK, by the way, is number seven or eight. Doing very well. It could do much better. Uh, France is 22. Yeah. Italy is something like 45. Those are huge differences. And they are due to the importance of national policy rather than EU policy. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of, a lot of uh, reforms could happen without touching the EU structure internally within states, I think. Um, and that's a lesson which also uh, is taken by the periphery. My own, I'm convinced that my idea is right. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that. Which is that the real Europe is diverse. Uh, mosaic of interdependent states and peoples. And we have to create a regime that corresponds to that reality. Who's going to drive that? Who will hmm? drive what you've just said? I agree with you totally. Who will drive it? Well, well um, that's one reason why the UK should keep its hat in the ring. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was one reason. Was one reason. Well, well, we don't know because I'm not so convinced. I don't know the ways we're going to go. But um, we have to... What matters in constitutional democracies are the huge millions of people who vote. The great unwashed masses. They are our, our bosses, really. And we should look at them. Let me just end on one point. In Fontainebleau, I have, my wife and I have friends called uh, Pepe and Felicia. Pepe and Felicia came from Estremadura in 1960. Penniless, illiterate, peonist. Pepe worked for 45 years in the construction sites of Paris, got up at four, back at eight, and Felicia worked in, in, the, in the households. Um, their son is chief engineer of Renault. Their daughter is a doctor, and their son is a doctor. Can you imagine a greater success? And yet, I say to Pepe, okay, Pepe, now uh, you go out fishing in your uh, time off in Estremadura. What are you going to do uh, when you get to politics? And he says, I'm going to vote Podemos. <laughs> now, Pepe is just literate. He is not a populist at all. All he is interested in is that workers get paid, that there is good schooling and there's freedom of opinion. Those three. And he lived under Franco. So I listen to him more than to all our eminent members here. <laughs> and I think we should too. Because that's the key to the future of Europe. Very good. Thank you, Jonathan. Okay. Great. Thank you. Lovely. Okay, so so we've talked about is Brexit actually going to happen and there is actually there is not agreement in this room although a majority of you think that Brexit is going to happen just 
judging from the way you've, you've voted with your hands. But the second, I think, and the thing that we focused on today is if Brexit happens, how much of an effect is it going to really have? And I'd love to hear from more of you who haven't yet spoken what you thought, either of the arguments that were presented today or that weren't presented, that you think sh we should bear in mind. So, yes. As you transition from your first question that we've been discussing to the second one, which you're moving us on to, um, can I suggest that, um, uh, in fact, today's discussions have pointed uh, to uh, a very significant halfway house between them? And this, which is the extension of the negotiation period, or the postponement of withdrawal. Yeah. Uh, and I found both in Simon Fraser's uh, paper and in Daniel Gunn's um, paper, mm -hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Gunn's uh, paper, do yeah. forgive me, yeah. um, uh, that they were crucially introducing this halfway mm -hmm. house of postponement mm -hmm. Uh, of, of the long ritual, transition, yeah. And pointing out the absolutely mm. crucial difference mm. in legal and constitutional terms mm. between, on the one hand, extending the negotiation period as members mm -hmm. yep. uh, and um, leaving yep. and then having a transition yep. period. This yep. is crucial difference, mm -hmm. which has been emphasized today, yeah. and which I suggest, however unrealistic it may seem mm -hmm. on this day, mm -hmm. uh, I think the fact that those two speakers <coughs> um, pointed to the huge importance of this, we should take that very seriously mm -hmm. as a bridge between your first mm -hmm. question and your mm -hmm. second that we mm -hmm. now move on mm -hmm. to. Thank you very much. You're agreeing very strongly, Daniel. Yes. Simon, yeah, and then... Uh, I think Brexit won't happen because <coughs> we won't allow it to, mm -hmm. with a bit of help from Andrew Adonis mm -hmm. and uh, Mark Malcolm-Brown. Mm -hmm. uh, it ought not to happen because, in addition to all the points made today, mm -hmm. the big challenges the world faces over the next mm -hmm. period are mm -hmm. global collective action problems, mm -hmm. like climate change. Mm -hmm. Paris only delivered 25% mm -hmm. of what was needed to stop global warming. Mm -hmm. There are 50 fragile states exporting mm -hmm. violence mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, and 50 million jobs needed in Africa by 2040. Those are problems in which both the UK and the Europe and Europe have a really strong interest and we have to work together in solving them. And the sooner the other member states recognise that fact, uh, the better. And I think the discussion needs to be about what Europe is going to lose when Britain leaves. And if we could get them to see that as clearly as possible and then make us the right kind of offer we could have a referendum in March and have it all sorted and get on with real life. Okay. I think you're trying to sneak us back to the question of is it going to happen or not, whereas we're sort of moving through this transition period <laughs> debate to if it happens, what's its effect? It's Matthew, is it? Uh, Nat, no, sorry, from the Foreign Office. Excuse me, can we turn that light off? It's really blinding me. Point about the possibility of extending the terms of membership. And I would note that the Prime Minister has 
close the door on that entirely. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, it's not in her gift, and she'd have to get the 27 to agree to that. And I think that there are two obstacles, one of which is a domestic political one, in that I'm not convinced that there's a majority in the House of Commons for an extension beyond March 2019. And the second point is I think there's no appetite for that whatsoever in Brussels. And it's already regarded as concession to give us an implementation or transition period. I think that would be taking it too far and it would get into the next seven-year budgetary period. So I think it's very it's it's a sort of it's a it's a logical starting point, but I just don't think it will work um, in practice though. It's a very good point. The question that I have for the panel, which is an interesting one, is that um, the big story for me of 2017 was the extent to which the 27 remained united through the talks on the one hand, and that the line which they've shared with us as we travel around European capitals talking to my uh, partners there in Brussels, is that Brexit isn't a big uh, event for European Union, and that is continually underlining and emphasising. It always strikes me that, although I'm not a psychologist, the more that one emphasises that something isn't terribly important, the more it seems to me that actually is very important indeed. So I don't think that the ramifications of Brexit for the European Union have been fully considered by the 27, and I think that Brexit has almost come as a sort of political gift in allowing them to, to, to unify around one particular issue on which they will agree after a number of years of migration and tourism, which they haven't agreed. So once Brexit is over with, and I think Brexit will be over with, uh, at least the first phase by 2019, uh, and as we move into the new standard relationship between the UK and the EU, what next for the European Union? What does it mean for the United States to be able to leave you know, and survive and go on? No doubt the United Kingdom will manage one way or another when we're talking about marginal economic effects. What does it mean then for the 27? What does Brexit mean? And why is that not yet being talked about? And I'd be very interested to hear what the panel and others think on that point. Could you also just give us a little snapshot of life in the Foreign Office? Totally Chatham House, no one's going to quote you. You're among friends. Um, you know, the Foreign Office was said at the time of the Brexit referendum to be mainly staffed with people who fervently believed in remaining. What is life like in the Foreign Office at the moment? Is, it, is everybody charging ahead full speed to try to make Brexit work? Are people uh, suffering from a lack of political direction because the Cabinet seems a little at odds on exactly which direction we're charging in? What's no, what does it feel like? Oh, are we? But they're not. They're not going to use this conversation. It's a very good question. And the answer to that is that the the, um, the skill and the professionalism of all of my colleagues is exactly the same as it always was. We all serve different governments of different colours. That goes with the job. Uh, nobody has voted for us. They voted for the politicians who represent us as a, as a country. Um, and therefore, you know, as, as you would expect. The civil service goes about its work with, with due diligence and professionalism, and you'll find that across the piece with my colleagues in Dexy, in the Treasury, in the Cabinet Office, in Number 10, in Bays, and elsewhere, because the, the vast amount of work, the quiet deliberation that goes on behind the scenes, away from all the headlines about disputes between members of the Cabinet, is, is unaffected. And believe me, there's no shortage of work to do on Brexit. So, you know, it, it's a all hands to the fun and getting on with it. And that is also why I think I'm absolutely convinced, apart from the politics of it, that. Brexit is going to happen now. I think that's another issue of 2017. At the beginning of 2017, I visit uh, Brussels and the member state capitals. A lot of people expressed the view that Brexit probably wouldn't happen. No one thinks that anymore. And indeed, Mr. Juncker said it himself this week. So, you know, the atmosphere in the Foreign Office is 
uh, is the same as it always is. I think the one thing that will change is a small snippet beyond the usual government line is I personally think, this is a purely personal opinion, the Foreign Office will get bigger, Europe will become foreign again, it will become more of a Foreign mm -hmm. Office area, we will do a lot more bilaterally in all of 27. Um, so there is a huge amount to do and there is a huge appetite mm -hmm. for that in government, in the cabinet, and that is what the Foreign Secretary has been very clear on. So, you know, I think it's a fascinating place to work for all of the challenges and difficulties. Uh, there is no yeah. job to do. I've done Europe for 15 years, and I can't wait to make any job to work with the and in the Foreign Office on this greatest challenge for our country since the and just to come back to your point about the transition, you say that March 2019, no Europeans would agree to a further extension of that. Well, no, I mean, Do any of the Europeans in the room have any other views on that? Yes. Yeah, I do. My name is Hans Henrik Lidgård. I'm a professor of law at the Lund University. Mm -hmm. I'm a very disappointed school. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. For the fact that you have we have always looked at the UK as the leader mm -hmm. in trying to transform and promote a better mm -hmm. European Union. And you're just leaving, which to us is uh, what we would like to, to remain rather than leave. It sounds to me when I listen to the debate, you want to leave, and I'm trying to answer your question, mm -hmm. uh, what effect it mm -hmm. We want to lead the uh, collaboration in the European Union, but each and every one talking today have explained how you still want to <coughs> the same situation, more or less, be it university, business, or whatever, as you've had in the past. To me, it seems that you are abandoning your voice in the Europe for the future in order to make a better Europe. And I don't quite see what, where you position Britain in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't believe that you can expect to have a collaboration with Europe without contributing to the future, more or less the way you're doing it now. So that's and very much I'm echoing Simon's, Simon's point about why he yes. sees reversal as so important. Yes. Yes, and, and <coughs> what I'm from Belgium, uh, we sort of had also, many of us had high hopes of Britain. And I think for me the most disappointing is that Britain for us stood as a parliamentary country mm -hmm. where parliament was informing the people. Mm -hmm. And I just am at a complete loss from what I thought Britain was about, which is, you know, parliament informs the people and finally the people vote. But here it's sort of the other way around, which is people didn't vote. And the parliamentarian said there's nothing we can do about it. Mm -hmm. so, so I would have also liked Britain to reform the democratic process in the EU. Mm -hmm. you know, with simplicity, I mean, in a certain way what David Simon did for BP, which is mm -hmm. simplification, you know, mm -hmm. administrative simplification. Mm -hmm. That is what we need in the EU. Yeah. But I, I don't have any positive narrative mm -hmm. when I read the paper. I mean, the mm -hmm. whole discussion, both on the EU side, mm -hmm. I find Juncker a disgrace. No, so this is a backroom dealer with Google and Nike yeah, yeah, yeah. and making tax deals, and he now represents Europe. And people yeah, allow yeah. this to happen. Yeah, and I'm saying, you know, where is democracy going? Mm -hmm. Which is, we need to train 
politicians, you know, like we used to, like we had in Seattle train managers, because they're absolutely clueless in terms of exercising their responsibility. I'm not saying managers are not clueless, but the, that's another issue. And, and I'm saying, where is the positive going to come from? Because as, as uh, Simon said, there's no shortage of problems. There is a war with China, you know, which, we, which we've lost, which we might now try to ally with. Which, I mean, the worst thing is Europe invested in China to create a monster that is now sapping the jobs from Europe, and I think we still haven't digested that. Mm -hmm. And that's a European issue, that's not a UK issue, well, that's, and, and the, the only reason, and I think that's why the Germans are so much in favor of the EU, is that the Euro has saved Germany. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, the DMAR would have increased and that would have created okay, so, so, so I'm saying, where yep. is the positive news from the Right, so there's a lot of, I think, understandable disappointment from European Union colleagues and countries about the British decision and its consequences for the European Union. But I guess the question that we're asking is what is the willingness to try to make a deal which will diminish the harm on both sides? So Carol, you gave us, the, I think, the most optimistic view that of today, saying really that it's not going to make a huge amount of difference. And I sat wondering about whether that applies to some other domains as well. But, but is, that, is that what your intention was to leave us with that, with that thought? And what is it that both Britain and European Union countries need to do to pick up that optimistic scenario? Or things that, we, that Britain must not do? I mean, first of all, uh, the reason why I was optimistic is because this agreement which was reached in December was concluded and I didn't expect it to happen, let's say, on, only a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Just there was a full agreement that the EU, UK would part, uh, made part of the budget, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that the Court of Justice would be accepted to be mm -hmm. in charge during the transition period, etc. Mm -hmm. So that's one part of it. But also, I mean, the EU regulates one part of our life, as I think Jonathan and others uh, said. But there are so many other parts which are regulated at national or at uh, local level. So it's not the only game in town. Yeah, it can't be heard. Can't hear you. If you could stand there, come forward. Sorry. No, I mean, what, what I said, I say first of all, the reason why I was optimistic is because of this agreement which was reached in December um, and on things which were, it was not expected only a few weeks ago that it would be an agreement. And then secondly is that the EU is not the only game in town. There are so many other factors which determine, so like I think Jonathan said, competitiveness of a nation. Um, I mean, and if you look at these leaks, uh, than what the EU regulates. And of course, there are some things where the EU has not succeeded mm -hmm. in regulating, as I was saying, in the financial services mm -hmm. sector. In other sectors, probably, they have mm -hmm. succeeded. Mm -hmm. Right. But, um, I mean, the local, the regional level, and then the global challenges are so extremely mm -hmm. important, as we're also saying in the context of the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm -hmm. So, and do you all agree with this, that actually the, the costs of this have been overstated, the impacts have been overstated? David? I agreement in December, I think that lays down a very strong line. Uh, what we were offered uh, was the possibility by Brexit, the possibility to break free and essentially look towards Asia. I've got a lot of Australian friends have been talking to me about, the, the, until December, about the opportunities that align yourself away from Europe and the future <coughs> complicated to think about, but real opportunity. Mm -hmm. The decision in December mm -hmm. was that Ireland will have no hard border. Mm -hmm. 
And that conclusion means we'll remain in the customs union mm -hmm. in some way or other. Mm -hmm. And we will then remain in the customs union without any possibility of this opportunity that we were promised. Mm -hmm. And this, the phrase has gone round as a vassal state. We will now be regulatory compliance with everything that is decided against us. No, that's wrong. In, in spite of us, without us. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think December increases enormously the strength of the argument that you were making and you were making. Delay, postpone, leaving, leaving in order to discover just how bad this will be. Because the great promise that was offered has been shut down. There's no promise. Yes. Yes. Uh, on, on two issues. One, one postponing. It, it's an attractive idea, but I'm inclined to agree with Nat that it would, we could only postpone the draw for a very limited period. And I see one scenario on this, and it is that, say, the Parliament has problems with the withdrawal agreement, or negotiations <coughs> go on right at the end of 2018. <coughs> And there's a last-minute agreement to extend the Article 50 period so that negotiations can be concluded uh, and processes can be concluded in the UK and, and, and in Europe. But I would see that as running into months, not into a, an extension that would lead, for example, to further elections to the European Parliament. Uh, in the UK. What would be the cost of Brexit? The RAND Corporation study is, is interesting because it's, it sees, and one can't take as gospel any mm. economic assessment, mm. but the RAND Corporation says take over 10 years the cost of WTO trade terms, mm -hmm. as against EU membership, mm -hmm. you lose 5% of GDP. Mm -hmm. You can mitigate that by 3% of GDP, either with the Norway Agreement model or with the Canada Agreement model. But interestingly, and this fits with Carol's point, the Norway Agreement is only worth about 0.3% of GDP over 10 years. In other words, a Canada model with aviation, plus some of the kind of mutual recognition Carl spoke about, would give us something like 60% uh, mitigation as against the WTO scenario because of the lack of advantage of a Norway agreement relatively. The political costs of that will, I think, take it off for definitely. I yes, and then I'm coming to you. I would like to go back to the question that you raised uh, five, ten minutes ago. What, what moves the man in the street? What influences the man in the street? And let me talk to you as a consumer goods guy. We've got a few in the room. Uh, the money in their pocket, as simple as that. It's about the money in the pocket. If you look at the three videos we've put on for you, Véron, Posen, and Wolf, out of the five, they're all about the economic outlook. The economic outlook is miserable coming from each of those videos, none of them created with the knowledge of the other person's video. It's a seriously difficult 
economic outlook which faces the man in the street if we exercise Brexit. And then you listen carefully, as I'm sure you did, to the very, very clear messages coming on industry, on British business, even though British business is hardly visible by the size of Germany, regrettably. But British business as it is, and you heard how many firms we've got, 7,000 big firms, my God. That was the number, I think. Um, if, if you listen to those questions and those answers, you know, and I've studied it, that's why I took, made contact with Paul, uh, I've studied it, they have a major problem coming of productivity, of, of, of faith, of faith, of um, loss of the right workers, of capability of mobilizing the right people, etc. The outlook for British business in its very, very, very poor structure across, across the world of, of Western Europe, in particular compared with Germany, but also with France. The outlook for, for, for British, British business is lousy. We're going to see less productivity. We're going to see a freeze on wages again, in reality. That's what we, the future tells us. Correct, Paul? Am I basically correct? Yes. Thank you. That's all I need to hear. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Um, yes, you, you've been waiting. I come from a very, very simple solution. I've heard nobody in this room yet say how we're going to stop Brexit in its tracks, except Parliament, possibly. I give you two solutions. One, the PR of the European Parliament and Commission has got to improve. Anthony was saying, that's not true. What it is terrible. I live in East Suffolk, close to the sea, and the word Brussels is toxic. You mention to anybody in the street that you are a Remainer, you're in trouble. <laughs> Secondly, um, we have just to convince 10 or 12 Tory MPs, that's all we have to do, to stop it in its tracks in Parliament. I come from that simple position, that's all we have to do. And you're doing that? What? And you're doing that? <laughs> well, my little MP is pretty useful. I do think that there's a wider theme that's come out of today's discussion. We began with Andy Moravchik's um, discussion of populism. And and that was going to be my point. That yeah. what what we're seeing here, we're seeing in every European country. Sorry, you've you've been waiting with a point. Yes. Yeah. 
started this stupid thing without informing people. If he'd stayed on and informed, and informed everybody, it was an advisory referendum. Perhaps we would have solved it. I solved it on the 24th of June, two years ago. Uh, but I think you could. Yes, but I'd like to bring us. I'd like. I'd like to bring us back to Anthony's point, which I think is a very powerful one. The flip side of which is that there are very large numbers of people across every single country in the European Union who think their lives have gotten worse, who think their access to housing, to education, and to health has gotten worse, and who are looking not for a politics of pragmatism, which is the college-educated establishment of Europe. They're looking to a politics of salvation. And that's what I would add to Andy Mravchik's analysis of populism, that, that in it is a huge politics of salvation and redemption, the promise that life will change completely for the better, which on the whole, the 75% the, the of people who voted for Remain have university degrees. And that's an argument that they actually are less prone to believe. They're, they're more likely to believe the oakshot politics of pragmatism and restraint. But if we're in an era of politics of salvation and redemption, that's huge for the European Union and for every country in the European Union. And I think we do have to take seriously the rise of the appeal of the populist parties in every country of the Union. Right at the back. Uh, thanks and congratulations on some great discussions. Uh, I'm from a, a, a non-Brit from a European nation, and uh, I think the die is cast on this. You know, the people voted. Uh, I campaigned for the UK, campaigned very actively for over 18 months for the UK to stay in and fix Europe from within, but it didn't. So the deal is, and I spent the week of the uh, joint statement in December in Brussels, the atmosphere towards the UK, like it or not, is toxic. Yes. And that's the deal. Yeah. That's where the UK citizen democratically is elected to place her or himself in that position. And I am utterly perplexed to, uh, to, to see how the UK hasn't responded in practical terms and said, so we're going and here is the deal that we want to put to the other EU 27 and ask them to agree it. With the clock is ticking on this thing. And I spoke with the Foreign Secretary, a man I admire on many levels. I asked him, could he name a single global country with which the UK would like to trade independently, with which it doesn't already or won't soon through the EU membership, and that's worth any money. And he looked at me straight and he said, yes, the USA. I mean, frankly, if we're going to need a little bit more thinking of this that makes sense to the other 26. And the other 26, with the exception of Ireland, who have a massive common bond with the UK in this matter, the other the, the 26 remaining of the 28 are moving on. And it seems to me there's a massive urgency that people are not responding to here to say, put cohesive ideas on the table for a formula that works. Wishing it away is not a strategy. Thank you. Your remark has sparked so much shaking and nodding of heads. Now I'm just going to pick up some quick final remarks coming from the back to the front. Yes. Yes. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, and this is being uh, provocative. I I'm curious as to how many people in, in the, the sort of Remain contingent in the UK today, which is now a powerful, very vocal campaign, um, were active in the referendum campaign itself. Because my memory yeah. of the, for, you know, the three and a half year warning period, mm -hmm. from the Bloomberg speech through to the general election in 2015, where you were 
configure earlier features as the reference, as an election promise through the renegotiation of that <coughs> itself, is that the, um, the Remain campaign was, was led by political parties, trade unions. There was no grassroots campaign to speak of in a serious way, perhaps outside places like Oxford, London, Cambridge, and so on. I, I mean, I suspect that would be different today, but, but there is a The problem is, is that the, the Remain constituency in the UK was, was complacent. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good point. We had Shirley Williams talk in the Blavatnik School about the difference between the 1975 campaign in which she was so active and this campaign. And her point was that unlike 1975, this recent Brexit campaign was run very much by the Prime Minister and Chancellor and it excluded others who came forward to say, could we be included? So actually it wasn't a broad-based campaign and it, it became a mixture of a referendum against the government and a referendum about Brexit. So I thought that was an interesting analysis. I just throw it there. Um, yes, just coming up. Yeah, uh, it's, I, I'm just concerned that, uh, yes, there will be economic damage, mm -hmm. that's clear. Mm -hmm. It will come far too late to uh, actually affect mm -hmm. any internal <coughs> debate on, uh, uh, on stopping the whole affair. Mm -hmm. Uh, what I think is going to be interesting is that insofar as the vote was a vote against a perceived cause of uh, a bad situation, you know, uh, left behind, <coughs> how far, uh, you know, what will be the next scapegoat? I mean, you know, the, the real, <coughs> I suppose, is for the Tory party, which will have delivered on Brexit, which everybody will then turn around and say, Andy, when populism fails to deliver, who becomes the next, next scapegoat? Um, well, politics is less organized than it was uh, previously, so it'll be a messy situation. But uh, the one thing I think we should really caution against is this view, which you just expressed, um, that the world is going in a populist direction. There's nothing we can do about it. This means Europe is in question and so on. I mean, just look across the 28 countries of the EU. Um, so first of all, there are very few countries there where a populist party is a viable governmental party at all, okay? I mean, not France, not Germany, um, arguably not Italy. And look what happens in the countries where those parties are more powerful. Set aside Eastern Europe for the moment, but look in Italy, look in Spain, uh, look in Austria, look in Germany. What happens as that populist party gets stronger? It starts to focus on migration and immigration issues and focus away from the EU because they start losing votes on the EU issue. Um, then you have a few countries in Eastern Europe. So let's take Orban as an example. So there's a canny individual, right? He, he portrays himself as an anti-European. He gets in a little squabble about legal implementation, and he runs a referendum against a policy that to a first approximation the EU does not have which is to, to set quotas of migrants. It was only ever a policy, even officially, for 5% of the migrants. There was never a consensus in Europe to, to implement it. The member states hate it and are never going to do it again. But Orban was smart enough to grab that opportunity. So in that minimal sense, he's anti-European. But you don't see Orban going around and saying, I'm going to pull out of the European Union. And you certainly don't see the Poles do that because they benefit from it so greatly. So where is all this groundswell? No, but, but Andy, my point is most definitely not that populism will win everywhere as an inevitable oh, consequence. My point is that we have seen a sharp, sharp rise in support for populists 
In Brazil, Bolsonaro's running number one with Kaczynski, with Orban, with the Freedom Party, in the Netherlands, in Austria, in Germany, in France, in Italy, in Spain. And that this rapid rise, the establishment political parties and the establishment, all of us in this room, have to learn from. And one of the things we have to learn is that the politics of pragmatism is not enough. It's not enough to say, vote for my party and GDP will increase by 0.5 of a percent. Because the reason why populists are winning the working class and those who are looking for redemption is because the establishment are not offering that. And I think yeah, established ways. parties have to learn from what is making of the populist successful. You can have it both ways. If you think the problem is that the working class in various societies in the world is not getting enough benefits, then the way to solve the problem is to give them more benefits. But what's all this stuff about, well, it's... It's um, you know feeling of identity and all that kind of stuff. That is a consequence of a policy problem if we accept your story, which you could solve in societies and you could not, and you might not solve. And as people have pointed out, most of those solutions will take place at the national level. What we're discussing here is the European level. What I'm pointing out is that in 27 of the 28 current members of the EU, everyone except where we are right now, this actually doesn't affect Europe all that much. It's self-limiting. Look at the Dutch case. The Dutch have an advisory referendum. They vote against the treaty with Ukraine. And what do the Dutch do? A couple of years later, they uh, pass the treaty in Parliament. And what happens the next day in Holland? Nothing. Right? Because in fact, this issue is not in and of itself a high salience issue for people. Either they're concerned about their own well-being, which is largely disconnected from from these kinds of, of uh, trade agreements with Ukraine, or something else, right? Okay, the well, idea that you're going to have 51% of the people vote in a populist government and reenact what happens in Britain is fanciful. Okay. So I think that's a, a debate. We'll agree to disagree on that. I would say that for 30 years, the G7 have tried to manage globalization in a way that they define as inclusive. And what we're seeing is a wave across the OECD countries of people saying, you have not managed it in a way that we trust or see as legitimate. And it's that that's spurring this call for a new politics that we have to listen to and we have to retool our political parties to respond to. That's a big call. Um, final two comments from you on, on today's debate. Yes. The question if, um, if Parliament, if you were to change enough minds in Parliament to get a majority to vote down the, uh, the final deal, that would precipitate a general election rather than a, a second referendum. What would that change? Who's standing, who's standing on which platform against Brexit? Who's got an answer? Yes. I'm a Labour peer. And I should be very participative in the deliberations in the House of Lords on Brexit. And I think that there is a scenario in which um, Jeremy Corbyn, who I believe to be actually a, a Brexiteer in sort of sheep's clothing, but I believe that there is a scenario in which he could be persuaded to change his view if there were enough people at ground level in the Labour Party, i.e. people who are perhaps influenced by momentum, shall we say. I'm not a momentumist, I'm not a Corbynister. Um, but I think there is a scenario in which he could be persuaded by the ground roots of the Labour Party to become more pro-European and to be more a more proactive European. 
Um, so I think that there, there is capacity for change. What bothers me is that all this takes time, and as somebody said, we've got European elections, 2019. We won't be participants in those European elections. The European Union, meanwhile, is discussing its budgetary, um, the budgetary future from 2020 to 2027. We're not going to be part of that. It is such a complex issue. However, I do think that there is potential for Brexit to be stopped in the UK. Small, but there is potential. Great. I'm aware that we're out of time, and I want to, I know, speak on all of your behalf in saying I think this debate highlights the service that Paul Madden, Queen's and I think most of all, Anthony Simon have done in pulling this um, rich feast of views on Brexit together. So can we, can we for this session, can we thank them? You. You, you have been a wonderful leader of this last session. You've got another date. You're late. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we thank you most. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks. Did I have that? Here we go. Oh, yes, I did. Okay. I think you're, I think we're about to make the video. Yes, it is. across the world, 
and employing 170,000 people directly and millions more indirectly and serving the needs of two and a half billion consumers every day, the UK's decision to exit the European Union is clearly just one of the many issues that we have to deal with. Nevertheless, it's an important one. Partly, of course, because the UK and Europe are such large and significant markets, but also because what is happening in the UK, as well as in other parts of the world, is reflected in my view of a growing disillusionment with globalization. Something which all of us, whether in government or business or academia, need to think long and hard about. I suspect that in this audience, many would share my belief in the enormous and positive power of globalization, provided that the benefits are well distributed. And unfortunately, as we have seen, that has not always been the case. In fact, while many have been lifted out of poverty by globalization, others have seen their income stagnate and inequalities rise. In the OECD countries alone, for example, the richest 10% of the population now earn around 10 times more than the poorest 10%. And as a result, many are feeling left behind, abandoned in their few by a system upon which they have previously relied. This in turn has given rise to sentiments of economic nationalism and in many countries has weakened dramatically the political compact for globalization. Brexit, in my view, is one unfortunate manifestation of this phenomenon, which is something we see taking hold in other parts of the world as well, though not always with such dramatic consequences. Faced with these uncomfortable realities, what can business do? Well, two important things in my view. First, by promoting more equitable and inclusive forms of growth, business can help address many of the underlying causes that give rise to such phenomena. After all, business is not a passive observer in this process. Today, 41 of the top 100 economic entities around the world are businesses. Some, including Unilever, reach more people daily than any single government does. In the developing world alone, business accounts for 60% of the GDP, 80% of the capital flow, and 90% of the job creation. Our ability to harness the size and scale as a force for good in the world is enormous. But it does require our companies to step up, to take a share of the responsibility for the issues we face, whether, for example, poverty alleviation, food security, refugee crisis, the water shortages, or climate change. This approach has always been part of our philosophy at Dunamis, though now we have thought to deepen and extend our commitment with our Unilever Sustainable Living Plan and its ambition to decouple growth from environmental impact while at the same time increasing our overall social impact. We do this in particular through our individual brands, giving each a clear social mission. In other words, to help address some of the root causes of these feelings of alienation. The good news is that a growing number of businesses take a similar view, acknowledging that their responsibilities go well beyond shareholders alone. Indeed, like us, they recognize that shareholder benefit is most when companies take a long-term, multi-stakeholder approach. Equally important, a clear policy framework now exists 
within which business can give expression to this desire to be part of the solution and not part of the problem to the challenges that we face. In fact, building on the Millennium Development Goals, the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals agreed in 2015 provide a clear roadmap on the journey to irreversibly eliminate poverty and do that in a more sustainable and equitable way. And credit, by the way, in this case, to the UK government, who have been among the most active proponents of the Sustainable Development Goals. But it can't be left to governments alone. Business must be at the foreground of this process. And, yes, it's in their own interest. By addressing areas of greater societal and environmental needs, the SDGs, or Global Goals, represent a compelling growth strategy, both for businesses large and small, and for the world economy at large. Indeed, there are over $12 trillion of commercial opportunities waiting to be unlocked, according to a detailed report on the Business and Sustainable Development Commission. Now, I am more and more convinced that by embracing this agenda, with enlightened and forward-thinking business models, business is not only serving its own long-term interests and that of societies on which it relies for its very existence, but it can also help restore faith in globalization and alleviate the conditions that give rise to such strong feelings of disillusionment with the system. The second thing that business can do, coming back more directly to the situation we're facing in the UK, is to engage positively and constructively in the Brexit process. There remains an important role for business in both the UK and across Europe to help move this agenda forward. That doesn't mean we shouldn't point out the obstacles and complexities of which there indeed are many. Nor does it mean refusing to look reality in the eye. We need to acknowledge, for example, that the priority for the US, Canada, or Australia is to do a trade deal with Europe, not the UK. They've said as much, loud and clearly. But moving the agenda forward does mean helping to look for solutions wherever they exist. It is, in fact, in no one's interest to see this process fail. I have been pleased myself to be a part of the Prime Minister's Ad Hoc Business Advisory Council and to have the opportunity to engage directly with the Prime Minister and many of the other ministers involved. I found them to be open, receptive and often practical, looking for solutions that are indeed common sense solutions. Though I worry about their capacity to deal with the sheer volume of what needs to be done, which is why it is so vital to agree, to agree clear transitional arrangements. Business needs that degree of certainty at the very least. My biggest concern is that at a time when international cooperation has never been more necessary to address the kind of global challenges that we face, we are in danger of turning our backs on the very international cooperation and interaction that has driven peace and prosperity for over half a century. I have always believed that Europe, including the UK, is stronger as an economic bloc. Everything that is happening in the world, including, as you have heard already, with respect to China, merely reinforces that view. As an aside on this, I thought I'd briefly mention a story that was shared with me recently. 
It actually concerns King George III, who in 1793 sent a mission under Lord McCarthy to China to open up diplomatic and commercial relations. The, string, the king actually instructed McCarthy to deliver a letter to the emperor, then Emperor Changlong, asking that the English be allowed to have an ambassador reside in the Chinese capital. The ambassador's role would be to protect British merchants doing business in China and open up trade between the two countries. In his reply, the emperor made clear that the request could not be entertained. Europe, he reminded the king, and I quote, consists of many nationalities besides your own. If each and all demanded to be represented at our court, how could we possibly consent? The thing is utterly impractical. <laughs> the emperor, it seems, was a very early proponent of the need for the European Union. <laughs> now, despite all of this, we have to remain positive and play our individual part as I've mentioned. One of the many things I admire about the Brits, in fact, is their reasonableness and common-sensical approach. I just hope that those characteristics prevail and are shown by others in Europe as well. Ultimately, although the discussions of Brexit dominate so many aspects of life, we are first and foremost citizens of planet Earth, which needs us badly right now. And on that, there is much we can be doing together, guided by the global world, to make this a better world for all. I certainly know that I can count on you for this. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Anthony, for putting this amazing group of people together on this important topic. I think outside there are, there are refreshments.